Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio. It's good to have you back again, and it's good to have with us today Anne Stevenson-Yang, who is a founder and, um, and principal of uh, J Capital, which knows everything about China. Big country, lots of people, and uh, lots of renminbi, and we'll get around to that in one moment. But first, first, ladies and gentlemen, a word from our sponsor, who happens to be me. No time is a bad time to subscribe to Grant's, that is for sure, but now just might be the best time. Now when markets are making highs and volatility is plumbing lows and the uh, SEC in its wisdom is weighing the first quadruple leveraged exchange traded fund. Now we at Grants are the yes but people. We are skeptics and doubters and first guessers. Whether it's a macroeconomic theory, a common stock, or a subordinated debenture, Grants puts it to the analytical test. And we publish every two weeks, 24 times a year, and uh, visit our website and read for yourself and see for yourself, and as we encourage every reader of Grants, uh, think for yourself. Subscribe to Grants. There's no time like the present. Oh, and by the way, we do have conferences. Yes, that's something else. We have one in the fall on October 10th. And guess what? Alan Greenspan will be there, and I'll be sitting and talking with him in, in person. Evan Lorenz, the great Evan Lorenz, is with us today, along with Ann Stevens and Yang. And uh, Evan, can you believe the lineup we have? We have uh, Frank Brosens and Jim Chanos and Mark Cajotes and Amy Falls and Jeffrey Tarrant and Paul Singer. And who knows who else might show up. It's going to be a fabulous star-studded day. October 10th at the Plaza. Uh, please do be there. Eric Whitehead is at the controls. And Ann Stevenson-Yang is joining us today to talk about China. And welcome. Thank you. And that was a... Uh, thank you is, is, a, is an English expression, but you could say that in Mandarin as well, could you not? I could if I tried, yes. Well, what do you say we conduct this interview in English? Let, let's do that this once, yes. Now, we love your work at Grants because you um, see things as many others don't. Uh, many people see China as uh, the emerging uh, super state, super power, and super economy of the 21st century. And then I guess there's uh, something to that in a, in a way. But you, I think, are much more skeptical about the finance, which is what we want to talk about today. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you are bearish, if I may use that word, bearish on China. Well, I, I think I'm bearish on China because China, because I believe that economics is economics wherever you find it. And China has, uh, has pushed to the very edge of the laws of economics by expanding its monetary system by uh, a factor. Um, you know, China has increased its money supply in excess of the whole U.S. money supply over the, since 2009. China now has 260% of its economy in cash. The U.S., I believe, is somewhere around 75%. China has increased its bank assets uh, by the total number of bank assets that the U.S. accumulated over 150 years. In other words, and that's just since 2009. So those things uh, really cannot stand for long. And the, the, the expansion of the monetary system and the uh, bank assets has been uh, matched by a phenomenal increase in asset bubbles and the strength of the renminbi internationally, which is why you can go out here on Wall Street and see lots and lots and lots of traveling Chinese people who are traveling on, uh, on their very uh, advantageously priced renminbi. Well, this would seem to be a derangement of finance on an epic scale. In fact, it reminds me a little bit about uh, Japan about, uh, oh, 30 years ago. And um, people observe that among the top 
10 largest banks in the world. I think there were, yes, there were 11 Japanese banks among the top 10. That's how big Japan was. Exactly. Big, big and getting immenser, if that's a word. And uh, some people egged on the Japanese bubble and others cringed at it and worried about it blowing up. And it did, in fact, uh, deflate starting in, what, New Year's Eve 1989. And we all live the tale of the tale. Why can't China, for all its excesses, all its derangements, uh, simply deflate away a little bit, a little bit at a time? Japan hardly has deflated a little bit at a time. China had uh, asset prices deflate by as much as 85%. Uh, Japan. Japan. Yeah, Yeah. did I say China? Yeah, Japan. Uh, Starting in, I think it was 1992 that the whole thing really came came tumbling down. Um, And so Japanese people got significantly uh, uh, poorer. And consequently, they've been spending less for all these years, which is why you see the Japanese bank just pushing money into the economy and trying to force a little bit of, uh, of, of inflation through, and it just never, never works. Uh, to be sure, all true, but uh, the world did survive it. The I world mean. did survive it. Um, and, but, but I think, and the world will survive the, the deflation of the Chinese bubble. I think China will retract and go back to being uh, a, a kind of unimportant economic player internationally, uh, the way it was in the, in the 1970s, and the world will survive and go on. But it, it's quite unfortunate for the Chinese people who might have used all that money to build a, uh, a robust education system, a health system, and a foundation for future growth. And you mentioned build, and there certainly is a great deal of building in China. The Asian development model is is, is common, is it not? It is. Yeah. But uh, in, in China, of course, there are storied uh, examples of, uh, of construction run amok. State bubble companies. Yes, please. Uh, <laughs> for, for example. Yeah, I mean, this is... China is... Um, does does scale better than anybody in the world. And think about it, none of these ancient empires like Egypt, the Mayans, uh, the Persians are left except China, these great centralized empires that can draw money to the center in this big crank uh, and build huge projects like the Great Wall or the Grand Canal. So China is really still doing that. It's just sort of farmed it out to private hands. So among those hands are some of the great real estate companies of the modern era, uh, the Vankies and the and the Wandas and the Evergrands. Um, Evergrande, I would say, Evergrande is sort of my favorite because there's no company that um, that plays to the bubble the way Evergrande does. The this rest is, this of is them, a, a, a company, a private company in China listed. Uh, exactly, it's listed in Hong Kong as three 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 three. Uh, it's also listed in little parts of it within China. And and the ultimate goal is to bring the whole thing back to China, but that's not going to happen this year, I think. So Evergrande, uh, it listed in 2012 after making a run in, tw- in 2008. The chairman of that company takes big risks. Um, he's, he enjoys gambling, and uh, he often builds up uh, these 
these threatening sort of, you know, pyramids of, of debt that, that threatened to topple over on his head, in 2008 tried to list the company in order to take care of that and uh, you know, pay for a big chunk of land that he'd committed to, failed. Uh, the 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 odds became greater and more uh, more desperate, and then in 2012 managed to get through, and ever since then has been expanding like mad. So this now, is a company. Yeah, you know, sorry, go ahead. You, you've called this the the greatest pyramid scheme scheme the world has ever seen. Now that that is some pyramid scheme. Could that you... is some pyramid scheme, but think of the scale. I mean, think well, tell of... tell us about the, some of the numbers. So how 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 many buildings do they own? How much debt do they have? Uh, how 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 great is their is their scope within China? Well, their total liabilities. Uh, Evergrande is a is a special case because it has on the book and off the book uh, liabilities. The total liabilities on the book, at last report, were one point five trillion renminbi. Trillion. That's with a T. In, um, in dollars, that would be about uh, divided that would by be what, about six point eight. About six point yeah six point eight. So one hundred fifty something like that billion. Mm -hmm. U.S. dollars. Now, a lot of that is for future construction, for land, uh, for land payments that they haven't made yet. Some of it is straight up debt. Um, but then off the books, um, in agreements with, uh, with small trusts and private equities and banks and other types of financiers, they have uh, many hundreds of billions more. Um, and they've used this to build these, these massive yawning complexes around the country. Their strategy is to go to the edge of new cities because China has, has these uh, purchasing restrictions in cities where they only allow registered residents to purchase a certain number of units. So what they do is they go right outside the edge of the city to where the purchasing restrictions no longer apply, but you can still claim to be sort of in the city. So their big project in that they claim is in Shanghai, for example, is a roughly two-hour drive from Shanghai in a place called Qidong in Jiangsu. And they build these, you know, these, these complexes with villas and towers and supermarkets and movie theaters and gyms and uh, so on and so forth. And then they pre-sell uh, usually about two years in advance of construction. And then they sell out and nobody moves in. And these complexes will accommodate 10,000, 40,000, 50,000. I've seen a, a one complex that accommodates almost 70,000 people. Uh, in I think that one is in Yunnan. Um, and, uh, and people hold these apartments. They'll come and visit on weekends sometimes, or they'll keep them for their parents or their children, and they wait for them to appreciate in price. Texans were wont to say, and some still do say, that real estate is not a cash flow business. It's an asset appreciation business. But if there's nobody in the apartments, that means there is no cash flow for somebody. Now, how is Evergrande, Evergrande funding itself in the absence of, uh, of this thing called cash flow? Are they funding themselves on on key money or prepayments? So how, is, how does this... Prepayments are a very big portion of it. Uh, if you get, get paid uh, two years in advance and that can finance your construction. Uh, debt is a, is a big portion of it. Um, and uh, you know, their own stock appreciation has helped a good bit. They've been raising money through an insurance subsidiary that they have uh, that was originally registered in Chongqing and using that money to buy their own shares, which they can then hypothecate for more debt. Uh, that's a pretty classic uh, Chinese strategy. The, the thing that's so interesting about Evergrande is that you walk through these complexes that 
sometimes have people in them, very often are mostly empty, sometimes are completely deserted, and yet they will be sold out. And often the, um, the, uh, the sales offices will be full of people signing contracts. And those same people walk around these complexes that I see as empty, distant from the, from the cities, unserved by, uh, by, 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 you know, local retailing, certainly with no entertainment opportunities, usually with no particular highways or rail or no access to the cities. What I see is this rather desolate complex built up with all these towers. And what the Chinese buyers see is a future when it will be filled with middle-class families. You have written a terrific report on Evergrande, and one of the things that struck me is the, as you put it, the sprawling collection of assets from bottled water to vegetable oil, milk, grain, media, health, financial services, and a soccer team. So it's not just building empty apartment buildings. Well, I mean, this is the thing. At the same time that all these Chinese uh, middle-class prospective buyers are walking through the showrooms uh, to buy these Evergrande apartments, the Evergrande management themselves are thinking, well, I really ought to diversify out of real estate. Real estate is over. So they've been driving money into yeah, milk, oil, food oil, the soccer team. The soccer team I think was probably more of a debt arrangement than anything else. Um, because what happened was they, they owned a soccer team. They sold half of it to, to Alibaba. And then they listed the soccer team. So presumably Alibaba got their money back. Well, this report, uh, again, this very terrific report concludes with the following. With a massive load of residential property that is unoccupied, poorly located, deteriorating, unlivable, and ultimately unsellable, carrying valuations equal to the toniest neighborhoods of London, New York, and San Francisco, the Chinese economy is far, far beyond the point where deferring a crisis gives the leaders an opportunity to inflate or otherwise ease their way out of the deep hole into which they have descended. So there is no way out for China? You know, there would be if, um, if China has this, this odd point of pride in holding up the value of the renminbi. And uh, a lot of that is for, uh, for, for domestic messaging purposes, because the leadership wants to be able to say to the Chinese people, we are a strong country. We're not like Russia, which depreciates its currency by 40%. You can travel around the world. You can buy things. You can be proud. But the problem is you can't double your money supply and keep the same exchange rate. Uh, it, it really kind of just doesn't fit with the laws of physics for long. When, oh when, um, Evan uh, Lorenz is sitting here. Evan is the staff sinologist. His Mandarin is not so fluent as yours, Anne, but he is, uh, I, I think he was, you were in China when? Um, uh, two years ago with, uh, with your partner. With Tim, yeah, I, I don't exactly remember. Well, I would, I would be, that, that, I, I would bone up for a week before debating <laughs> Evan, so I wouldn't worry about yeah, the Mandarin. So, so it, it is said that the greater your distance from China, the uh, the more authoritative you can sound. But uh, Evan has done some first class work for us on China, and I know Evan, you have, have some questions for Anne as well. Yeah, uh, my first question really is: uh, a giant credit impulse that China started in 2016 lifted commodity prices around the world and led to really strong Chinese economic growth in the first quarter. It also kind of lifted the fortunes of a lot of emerging market countries that are keyed into the commodity complex. In recent weeks, we've seen indications of problems in the bank system. For example, the five-year government bond yield is now higher than the 10-year government bond yield. The one-year SHIBOR rate actually topped the one-year prime loan rate, which means that it's cheaper for uh, companies to borrow from banks than it is for banks to borrow from one another. And commodity prices kind of rolled off. What's happening? 
So what's happening is they, they are, the authorities are trying to, uh, there's, there, there's the problem writ small and the problem writ large. The immediate uh, problem is that um, over the, the period of the stimulus since 2009, uh, the interbank system has metastasized into a massive sort of, sort of souk for, for cash for the whole economy. You have now more than 10,000 organizations that are, that are qualified to borrow in the interbank market. And many of those may be subsidiaries of property developers or other, other financial institutions that don't really have that much credibility. So what they've been doing is they've been going into the interbank market and borrowing seven-day money at let's say 2% and rolling it for two years. And the interbank market really can't default because that would be terrible and systemic. So that really annoys the authorities. They don't like all these sort of substandard institutions borrowing and rolling in a way that the interbank market is not designed for. So they decided that rather than disqualify people because that's hard, and they've already just recently issued all these licenses, so it's messy. Instead, they'll drive up the short-term rates and make it harder for them to do. So that's one reason. There are other reasons as well, but that's sort of the proximate cause. So they've been trying to inch up the short-term rates, sort of 10 basis points a month. The problem is that as soon as you do that and you start to contract the money supply, not contract, but reduce the volume in the interbank market, then you start running into liquidity squeezes and defaults. And defaults are verboten in China. So as soon as there's a pending or a, a possible default, they send off this fire brigade uh, filled with cash and they go with a huge cash hose on whoever the culprit is. So they don't actually end up, you know, tightening liquidity, except they're trying, they, they, they have more control over the liquidity from the central bank. So anyway, that's what's going on now. And it's creating this drama of, of sort of, you know, tightening and loosening, tightening and loosening, uh, and greater volatility and greater anxiety generally, and more, more general difficulty for the private economy to get cash. I forgot what the question was. Meanwhile, did it was, I answer it? Was, it? it was a heck of an answer, though, Anne. <laughs> Tell, tell us about the, uh, the interplay between um, the so-called private sector and the Communist Party. People are wanting to say, well, nothing bad is going to happen pending uh, the, uh, the November you know, powwow. Party Congress. The, yeah. Party. So um, what about it? I mean, this, this also speaks to the question of when, oh, when will the denouement arrive? But uh, do tell about the Communist Party first. Well, there's always a target, isn't there? Um, there was the Olympics. There was the Shanghai World Expo. There's the Party Congress, the 18th. Now there's the 19th. There's always something because the, the party does its best work when it organizes around campaigns. However, it is a very important meeting. And um, going into that meeting, part of the, part of the dynamic is uh, this argument between two sort of broadly writ factions in the party, one of which says, we have to stop this. We have to start you know, directing money to the real economy. We have to get growth. We have to find a way to growth that's not entirely dependent on new capital. I mean, China invests well over 40% of their economy every year in order to capture that supposed six, six point, whatever it is, 5%, um, which honestly is overstated by quite a bit. So that's a very large ratio, right? So they want to bring that down. So one group says, well, we can do that and 
there are some ways. To do it. The other group says, no, we can't actually, and we still have the ability to accept more debt, so let's just do that. So they kind of careen back and forth between these factions, and China's political system being a, a kind of vague, you know, sort of consensus system um, that nevertheless has very high stakes. So people can be very sort of brutal about achieving that consensus. Um, people have to use fairly, fairly covert or uh, somewhat coercive means to achieve their their points of view. So that's one thing that's so. So I believe that there's there's a there's sort of corruption. I don't know whether you'd call it a crackdown, but there's an initiative to attack what's what's articulated as corruption in the banks. And I think that this is supporting this general effort to try to stop stimulating a little bit. To, to what extent can the party actually control things? I mean, when you read a lot of China narratives, they basically say, well, Xi Jinping controls the country. What he says goes. Every five years, they come up with a new plan, and they deliver on it. And there's this belief that there's this ability to direct this 1.4 billion you know, person economy that has $34.8 trillion in banking assets, and that they can just direct everything, and it'll all go according to plan. Like, what kind of grip does a party really have on the economy? And like, are they able to direct things as smoothly as kind of the Western press believes? Well, conveniently, the party also controls information. So what they do is they direct our attention to the, you know, to the little ball in this hand instead of this hand. So when we articulate these 12 goals in the in the five-year plan, if one of them is achieved, then that's the that's the one that gets the attention. And if you look at the goals over the previous five-year plans, Honestly, they've they've almost all been complete failures. But what what the party can do, and it's a very very powerful tool, is invest. So uh, so the party, when it was focus, it, it it focuses on economic growth driven by capital investment. That's been a very powerful tool. It has the ability to aggregate capital and direct it to a target, and so that's what it has achieved. That's really pretty much the limitation of the party's power, investment. So you notice, for example, that um, that environmental control or you know control of environmental pollution is a key political goal, but they don't have any means for achieving it except for investment. So they get all the state companies to take big loans and improve their, their equipment to clean their emissions. But beyond that, they can't do anything. So when the so the companies run without using the equipment because they can't get the price that would pay for it. So and and the party really can't do anything about that. That's one example. Well, they they do say that when something can't go on forever, it won't. This does seem as if it had been going on forever, and yet also it seems as if it can't. Mm. Um, when uh, could you give us, if not the. Uh, the exact date of the denouement, and could you give us like the month and the year? Yeah, August twelfth, not two thousand twelve. No, um, th th these these things have what I'd like to think of as a probabilistic path and a deterministic path. So the probabilistic path is there's all this stuff that they have to that they have to keep control of, the all this stuff stuff being defaults that are cropping up in the economy. And you have this fire brigade that's rushing around with its hose of money, and the likelihood is that you'll miss sometimes. And of course, that's happened a good deal, but what you need to miss for there to be uh, a crisis or a default at the banks is something really big. How about Evergrande? Exactly. 
So if Evergrande, now I've been watching Evergrande because Evergrande's insurance company, which was a key uh, channel for, for aggregating capital, uh, has been halted from selling products for a, a little while. Um, however, Evergrande has uh, a lot of ability to collect money from other types of uh, shadow institutions, being um, trusts and, um, and and private equities and things like that. So it seems like Evergrande's capital is still abundant. But uh, I was watching this because Ever Evergrande needs a constant infusion, like it, it, really like a patient hooked up to a uh, IV. IV, thank you. <laughs> um, and without without this constant influx of money, Evergrande will in fact collapse. But it does have this constant influx of money. Well, what about those immense reserves we keep on hearing about? That is an interesting thing. Uh, the, of course, the really interesting question is what is in those reserves and what portion of those reserves are liquid. Um, I think that uh, a significant portion are dedicated to uh, the the share of the bank stocks that the central government owns that are listed in, in Hong Kong. And I believe that they've been gaining appreciation out of the stock appreciation there. A big portion is their loan securities uh, that are outstanding to countries like Venezuela and Angola and, you know, the loans that they've been ex extending all over the world. I, w I might uh, write down some of those Venezuela loans myself if I were running things in China. You would think. They actually wrote them up uh, about, I guess it was, I guess it's almost, it's about a year ago now. Um, but that was because Venezuela clearly was not going to pay. There was a rumor that Venezuela had offered <laughs> to give them an island in return for the debt, but that China refused. Um, so, so much of that is not very liquid. They do have those U.S. treasuries, which now number uh, about uh, 850 billion, something like that. I believe that those treasuries are hypothecated to some extent, um, but they are the key liquidity tool that China can sell up and you know buy buy sell down and buy up. So you've still got. I think that they need to hold around six hundred billion in the bank. So you certainly have a good four hundred billion to go. The reserves are a most curious asset. I mean, when I think of an asset, it's something that you could actually draw on in a time of stress. But if China were actually to sell down those reserves, that would actually contract the money supply, which would seem to put the Evergrands and other money-sucking corporations into a, a little bit of a tighter stretch. H how do you think about the reserves and their ability to utilize them without causing collateral damage? Well, this, they've been quite successful at it for, for a long time now. The, the rate has only slipped um, from its peak at 6.0. It's about 6.85 now. So that, that hasn't slipped that much considering the degree that the money supply has expanded. And a lot of that has to do with uh, selling down the reserves, asking banks to sell reserves. And they, of course, they print in order to compensate for it. So it's been pretty successful. Uh, the, I, I think the fundamental question is that you now have this currency where you can take 6.8 of these things and uh, you know buy BMWs and, and houses in London and things like that. There comes a point where the, uh, the, the London seller and, the B, and BMW corporation will no longer sell for 6.8 of those things, and that will that will force. And the Chinese government has been backing that by ex, by regularly exchanging the currency for the money. But um, there comes a point where the world becomes a little too skeptical of the value of that renminbi, and the renminbi has to tumble. 
when does it happen? I mean, China last year not only put in capital controls, but they actually put uh, current account controls, which is, you know, for econ people, a little more shocking. They made it um, difficult or impossible for corporations to remit dividends that they had earned in China outside of China. I mean, they, they've really locked down the ability to get money out. It's Hotel California. Yeah, I I think that that's a bit overstated. Um, they they have they've have put in put in place a lot of controls. There's a lot of window guidance at the banks telling the banks to control the amount of money that they that they remit by quota. But one has to remember that probably about seventy percent of capital flight occurs on the trade account, and that is really impossible, pretty much impossible for the authorities to police. Well, Anne, this has been uh, merely fabulous. And um, I think my takeaway is that uh, that China is a big country, lots of people, lots of debt. And uh, what we need, we China bears, is lots of patience. And that also about sums up what I can tell you about China. So there you go. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. And uh, until next time, um, do return to Grant's Interest Rate Radio. 